out there mushing Krakens. I almost feel sorry for them, Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, a walk through the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 5, Evacuation, 1946. I'm Keith Pilly. Uh, before I get into it this week, I wanted to just take a second and address the fact that, so I know I've been opening every week with a little bit of, um, you know, listener response, and uh, I realized I have actually not made it very easy for listeners to respond. So I wanted to just take a second and say, if you are enjoying the show, or I guess hate listening to the show, and you've got something you want to say, you know, you uh, have a response, you have a question you want to ask, um, or, you know, you just want to tell me our rule, like, uh, who doesn't like to hear that they rule? I am pretty easy to get in touch with. Um, I'm on Twitter more or less constantly. Um, my handle there is at Keith Pilly, that's K-E-I-T-H-P-I-L-L-E. Um, if you are not into the brevity thing, uh, you can get me by email. Um, it's keithpilly at gmail. So again, K-E-I-T-H-P-I-L-L-E. If you are of a more visual bent, I, uh, I am on Instagram too. And I actually, with both Instagram and Twitter, you know, you may occasionally get, uh, some visual art related to the show because I'm, I'm a man with sea monsters on my mind and, uh, you know, that finds its way out from time to time. So yeah, you know, um, through any of those channels, please let me know uh, what you think, what you don't think, um, you know, challenge me to a duel, whatever, whatever is your speed. Um, I welcome any and all listener response. Uh, so anyway, right on. Let's, uh, let's recap last week really quickly. So last week we talked about a straight up disaster. Uh, after the destruction of the west end of the Panama Canal, the Navy was ordered to go out and just straight up destroy the sea monsters. So, Admiral Mark Mitcher led the U.S. Third Fleet out of Pearl Harbor to find them and destroy them. And, frankly, he got his ass kicked in the process, um, losing the carrier Intrepid. He returned to Pearl Harbor and immediately resigned in disgrace. This week things really start to fall apart. And the United States faces an uncomfortable truth about its presence on a lot of Pacific islands, including Hawaii. Through the summer of 1946, it became increasingly clear that the situation in the Pacific was out of control and steadily getting worse. Not even during the darkest days of the war had the Navy been unsure to this level of its ability to assert a presence at any given point in the ocean. Shipping and fishing losses mounted, and both shipping and fishing networks were further damaged by the reluctance of companies to send vessels out into danger without any confidence in the Navy's ability to protect them. This, of course, was on top of the already severe disruption to shipping created by the destruction of the west end of the Panama Canal. The first drastic effects of the collapse of Trans-Pacific shipping, as mentioned last week, were felt by the U.S. occupation forces in Japan, who found themselves in an increasingly untenable situation as the flow of supplies they required slowed to a trickle. Uh, you know, I realized also I took it a little bit for granted that everyone knew, um, but at, at the end of the war, after the Japanese surrender, um, a substantial U.S. Force, you know, military presence led by General Douglas MacArthur 
was left in Japan to basically, yeah, theoretically at least, oversee the installation of a new democratic government that, oh, would just happen to be friendly to the United States. Uh, so there were you know, tens of thousands of troops in Japan um, under the command of General Douglas MacArthur, who I think is a guy we will have to get into in more detail sometime later. Um, he's important now, but he will be more important. So anyway, um, as the Soviet presence in the islands increased, the American garrison withered on the vine. By late July, when transports managed to reach Japan, General Douglas MacArthur's staff were quietly ordering troops to board them and risk the return trip to the United States in order to make the balance of supplies to troops more feasible. Key to this effort, of course, was concealing it from MacArthur, who would have reacted violently if he had discovered the order. Fortunately for the staff, MacArthur's attentions were split between decorating the palace he had appropriated as his governor's residence and wrangling with President Truman over the proper way to respond to the Soviet encroachments. As the situation in Japan worsened, a larger-scale crisis emerged much closer to the American homeland. Under the de facto blockade of the sea creatures, Hawaii was also rapidly consuming supplies at a much greater rate than it could receive them. General Art Peters, the military governor of Hawaii, initiated rationing in June, and then much stricter rationing in July, but the problem continued to worsen. The people of Hawaii were just eating more food than they had, and prices were spiking all over the islands. Meanwhile, military operations at Pearl Harbor got more and more difficult as crucial staples like aviation fuel waned. Gravely concerned, President Truman conducted another series of conferences with Admirals Nimitz and Spruance and a team of economists and shipping specialists, and they saw no immediate way to reverse the trend lines. Addressing the nation by radio on August 9th, 1946, Truman ordered the evacuation of quote-unquote non-essential residents of Hawaii back to the mainland United States because of the growing supply problem. In the same address, he announced that the U.S. Pacific Fleet would move its headquarters to San Diego, although Pearl Harbor would remain an active forward naval base. In practice, the bulk of the evacuation of Hawaii came from naval personnel transferring to San Diego as SyncPAC headquarters was moved and Pearl Harbor was somewhat de-emphasized as a naval base. For understandable reasons, even with the supply problems, most civilian residents of Hawaii had little to no interest in evacuating to the mainland. Legalistic tricks and outright graft flourished as people found ways to get themselves deemed legally essential and military governor Peters quickly decided that fighting this just wasn't worth his time. In the end, less than 15% of the civilian population was evacuated from Hawaii, although the military evacuation was sizable. Ironically, the partial evacuation of Hawaii led to an immediate increase in American shipping in the Pacific. People leaving Hawaii needed a way to get back to the mainland, after all. By mid-August, the Navy instituted a crash program of providing armed escorts for organized convoys running back and forth between West Coast ports and Hawaii. Any shipping traffic in the Pacific ran a risk of a creature attack. The frequency and size of these convoys made them particular flashpoints for attacks. Not every convoy met with trouble, but many did, and every voyage was tense. 
Several convoys reported encounters with lesser sea creatures through late August and early September, with incidental damage and minor loss of life, but no serious impedance to the convoy run. The first major convoy loss came on September 8, when Evacuation Convoy 9A, en route from Pearl Harbor to San Francisco, was attacked by the Kelp Man 450 miles east of Honolulu. The outward leg, bringing food and parts to Pearl Harbor, had been unremarkable, if tense. The convoy of 12 ships, escorted by three destroyers, docked and unloaded, and then reloaded with evacuees in their possessions. The convoy set out with the tide on September 7th, sailing through the night without incident. And then, on the morning of the 8th, a previously unseen type of sea creature attack began. So-called lesser creatures, mostly octopi and squids, significantly larger than their typical natural size, but much smaller than El Pulpo and Blackjack Kraken, attacked the swarming vessels on the surface, entangling them en masse with their tentacles. Generally speaking, lesser creatures weren't strong or massive enough to pull a ship under, although with enough of them squeezing, they were more than capable of buckling hulls, especially on older ships with more brittle hulls, but they were very effective at bringing vessels close to a dead stop. The Navy and its protectees had encountered these lesser creature drag attacks before, but never to the swarming level of the September 8th attack. By design or chance, the swarm managed to disable the three escort destroyers in their initial assault, as well as several of the merchant vessels in the convoy. Seaman First Class Eric Hoffman, a crewman on the destroyer USS Woodard, later told the FCDP of a typical but horrific encounter of this phase of the conflict. Quote, I was on the foredeck with Chief Giffen when it all broke loose. Giffen was one of those salty old chiefs who'd been in the Navy since God was a little kid. And I always tried to stick around him as much as I could just to learn a thing or two. The guy was a walking class in seamanship. Anyway, the ship had been steaming forward, and then suddenly there were just tentacles everywhere, and we were at a dead stop. We all kind of got tossed forward by the stop. Me and Chief Giffen both got thrown down onto the deck as the railing around us suddenly got covered by these just awful, wiggling squid tentacles. We could hear men screaming and sirens going off as the ship went to general quarters, and even some small-caliber gunfire as Marines on deck started firing at the tentacles. But we could also hear the hull starting to groan from the pressure. I jumped up to run to my GQ duty station, and I saw that the chief was still on the deck with a tentacle wrapped around his leg. We made eye contact, and I started to move towards him to help. He shook his head and yelled at me. Get to your station, you dumb son of a bitch. Get yourself clear of this, he yelled. Then he started whacking at the tentacles with a piece of railing that had broken free. As I ran off to my station, I could see him get pulled over the side. We spent the rest of the morning trying to keep some kind of goddamn sea serpent from punching its head through the hull plating of the number two engine room." End quote. With the escorts essentially disabled, the cargo ships that were still capable of motion opened up their en engines and broke formation lurching forward in essentially random directions at their highest speeds. As the convoy scattered, a colossal humanoid form, either made of or covered with seaweed, emerged from the water in the middle of the dissipating formation. The creature, soon to be dubbed the Kelp Man by newspapers, started out by punching several ships, causing serious hull damage 
and quickly escalated to grabbing the aging transport ship Patuxent by the stern and bow and ripping it to pieces. The Patuxent went down immediately with all hands. By the time the Kelpman and lesser creatures went back under the water, two other transport ships were damaged to the point of being unable to move under their own power, and eight ships were gone, having scattered beyond visual range. The battered escort destroyers rigged tow ropes to pull the two crippled vessels to San Francisco. They arrived four-tenths days later. The rest of the scattered convoy continued to trickle into different West Coast ports for the next week. Through the summer and fall of 1946, the public mood continued to plummet. A nation that had been looking forward to a period of relative normalcy after years of turmoil instead found itself dealing with new losses and privations. In one sense, even catastrophic effects on Pacific shipping were of minor importance to the nation as a whole. During the war years, there had been very minimal overseas trade in either ocean, and now shipping was at least rebounding in the Atlantic, and although the loss of the Panama Canal was a grievous strategic blow, in commercial terms, most of the east-west traffic in the U.S. occurred by rail. But the psychological effects were severe. Even before the effects of the collapse of the shipping industry were widely felt, the West Coast was rocked by the abrupt implosion of the seafood industry. Pacific fishery was simply not possible under the current conditions. Seafood restaurants closed in unfathomable numbers far too quickly for any federal aid programs to be implemented to save them. Entire cuisines essentially died out with amazing rapidity when seafood that required anything more than wading into waist-deep waters became simply unavailable. Consumer confidence plummeted, particularly after the route of Convoy 9A, and the economy slid into a recession much more severe than would be expected just by the scope of damage to shipping and fishery. An editorial in the Chicago Tribune bitterly observed that in prompting the partial evacuation of Hawaii, the sea creatures had managed to do what the combined might of the Empire of Japan had not. After the conflict, Marie Ford, an evacuee from Honolulu, gave extensive testimony on the matter to the FCDP. I'm going to quote her at length here. Quote, My husband and I were living on the edge of town in Honolulu when the crisis hit. I had stayed in Hawaii through the war, Dan was in the Air Corps and was here for a while and then stationed away for a while, and it had never been anything like this. We all panicked in 1941 after the redacted attacked the fleet, but even then the panic went away pretty quick. We were never scared that we were going to run out of food, even when we were scared about more attacks. But with the sea monsters, it was different. We were scared out of our minds. Dan demobilized in September of 45, and we were just getting established in our new lives after the war. He got a job as a car mechanic. I got pregnant in early 46. And then the sea monsters showed up. Maybe they'd showed up sooner than that. I don't know. I wasn't really paying attention. But that's when they really started putting the squeeze on us. First, prices started going up every time you went to the market. Then there'd just be empty shelves. No produce from the mainland. No seafood. No toilet paper. I was pretty far along in my pregnancy as this was happening, and good lord I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen if I was pregnant in a food shortage. I didn't know what it would do to the baby. I didn't know what it would do to me. Dan kept saying we'd get by. I kept saying that's easy for you to say when you don't have a baby growing in your belly. 
When Governor Peters announced the evacuation, we fought for a couple of days. I wanted to go out on the first ship. Dan wanted to stay. We'd worked hard to establish a life here, he said, and he didn't want to give it up. We had a house. It wasn't a fancy place, but it was ours. He had a good job, and I wanted to throw it away because I was scared of monsters. Neither of us had family on the mainland. God knew where we'd end up living. He was pretty sure he knew a guy in the governor's office who could get him declared essential so we could stay. But it wasn't monsters I was scared of, I said. It was starving to death or having a miscarriage because the baby wasn't getting enough of something. And God bless him, Dan accepted that. I could tell it broke his heart, but he accepted it. He told his friends at the governor's office, thanks, but no thanks. And when we got our letter telling us to register for transport to the mainland, he filed it. People who were lucky or had enough money to bribe the right people got to cross to the mainland in passenger liners that had been converted to troop carriers for the war. Even stripped down, they were pretty comfortable, not us. We showed up at the loading dock on our appointed day with our two suitcases each and got herded aboard an old cargo hauler. They'd filled the ship's hold with hammocks and had us packed in there like cordwood. That passage was pure hell. The ship was so overloaded that they could only let us up on the deck in real small numbers at set times, so we spent most of the time down there in that nasty hold swaying up and down as the ship moved through the water. Most of the time we were bored out of our minds. A lot of the time we were scared silly, especially since even through the hull and over the sound of the ship's engines, you could hear booms and sirens sometimes, and you'd know that the escorts had seen something or thought they'd seen something, and they were out there trying to fight it off. I know Dan was trying to be as graceful as he could, but he still stopped talking to me outside of what was absolutely necessary, like, you need any water? After the third day. I was hurt, but I guess I understood. Really, I was numb. I was still scared, and I was bored, and I think that the hold of that old ship was as close to hell as I ever want to get. I was up on deck one time for one of the creature sightings. Standing at the rail, looking out to the sea and the escort ships, when the sirens started up and a bunch of planes that had been circling started buzzing one spot on the ocean a ways out, just opening up with their machine guns with everything they had. We watched the escort ships move over that way and we were cheering like it was a football game. And then one of those escorts stopped moving and something must have hit it hard from underneath the water because it just broke in half. I could see men spilling out into the water and the two halves of that ship just disappeared. The officers of our ship ordered us all back down into the hold, and we all went down, scared to death that our ship was going to be the next one broken half. But it wasn't, and after maybe a week, we pulled into San Francisco. We didn't have anywhere to go, no family or nothing, so we signed up for a spot at one of the government refugee camps outside of Bakersfield. Dan and I both cried the whole train ride there, although I was at least happy to be off of that godforsaken ship. A couple of weeks after we settled into the camp, there was a typhus epidemic. I got lucky and somehow didn't catch it. Dan did. He was dead before we'd been on the mainland for a month. I gave birth to little Stephen a few months later in the camp hospital, the same one where his dad had died. End quote. Now... Despite the overweening gloom, not all the news in late 1946 was bad. 
if the Hawaiian evacuation convoys were frequent targets of creature attacks, the majority of them did at least make their runs successfully. I mean, as a success, this was balanced, of course, by the fact that the existence of the convoys themselves was seen as a source of national shame, but, you know, success is success. Uh, more concrete good news came in December. Following an evacuation convoy into the port of Seattle, a moderately sized lesser kraken began attacking ships and facilities with abandon. A trio of destroyers, assigned with a small flotilla of patrol torpedo boats to defend the port, swarmed the creature and, using a mix of ramming and point-blank, shallow-setting depth charge drops, essentially repeating the tactics used by the Dahlgren in Blackjack Kraken's first recorded attack. And, as in 1945, these tactics were successful, if with a cost. The creature was destroyed, but with the loss of two PT boats and extensive hull damage to the destroyers Grissom and Lowry. At roughly the same time, aviators working on convoy protection duty from the fleet carrier Saratoga reported some success using precise, targeted attacks with fragmentation bombs in formation from dive bombers to drive creatures away from surface attacks. This quote-unquote bomb herding required excruciatingly precise flying by a team of dive bombers and was profligate in its use of ordnance. A minimum of five 500-pound bombs were required to chase a creature away. It wasn't effective at all against the larger primary class creatures or even massed attacks of lesser creatures. But in specific circumstances, it did work. The success in Seattle and with herd bombing prompted fierce debate within several corners of the Navy. By this point, SYNCPAC had created a special staff office led by Lieutenant Commander Rich Trumbull, a veteran of the Dahlgren incident, to gather information about the creatures and coordinate a fleet-wide response. We've talked about the Trumbull group before. The Trumbull group, which was briefly mentioned last week, both worked with and clashed with a special office of Naval Intelligence Task Force dedicated to the creatures. This ONI team, led by Captain James Oberst, advocated a from-the-ground-up study of the creatures, arguing that to defeat them, they had to be completely understood. Where did they come from? What had prompted them to be active now? Did they have goals? Was their biology different from that of normal sea creatures? The Trumbull group rejected this approach. The only thing that mattered about the sea creatures was how one could develop actionable naval plans to beat them, they argued, and Oberst's first principles questions only mattered insofar as they could inform battle plans. As a practical matter, the official Navy sink pack response was pushed towards the Trumbull position by a civilian member of Oberst's ONI team, the civilian mathematician Dr. K. Hendry. Academically, Hendry was a pioneering figure in pattern recognition and game theory. During the war, she had worked with ONI to develop mathematical models to predict the behavior of Japanese submarine forces. Hendry's modeling had played an obscure but crucial role in American anti-submarine efforts later in the war, and she brought this same approach to understanding the sea creature menace for Oberst's ONI team. Working entirely from mathematical extrapolations from the observed patterns of behavior of the sea creatures, Hendry's model offered nothing in terms of answers for the basic where did these creatures come from questions Oberst wanted to ask. But as the data continued to pour in, they became increasingly successful in predicting where and when the creatures would appear and in what numbers 
and with what mode of attack. By late 1946, Hendry's models weren't in position to provide comprehensive knowledge of the creature's modes of operation, but they proved immensely useful to Trumbull and Spruance in allocating Syncpac's resources to protect the convoys still working to evacuate Hawaii, particularly when the improved coordinated dive bombing tactics were worked into the mix. Sailors on the front lines still felt endangered every moment they were at sea. But at higher levels, a sense began to permeate that the Navy had at least managed to stop the bleeding. The situation was still out of control. I mean, any success being celebrated was a success in evacuating a major United States outpost. But the Navy brass felt like they now at least understood the tools that would be needed to truly regain the initiative. Spruance, Trumbull, Oberst, and several other highly placed Pacific Fleet figures were called to Washington to meet with Nimitz and Truman to discuss plans to shift the fleet from convoy defense to more aggressive attempts to engage and destroy the creatures in hopes of regaining the initiative in the Pacific and eventually bringing the crisis to a close. And that's where we're going to end it this week. Thanks for listening. Please join me next week as we talk about that conference in Washington and what came out of it. Look out, folks. It's typhoon season. Um, also, as always, if you are digging the show, like I said up front, please, you know, I love any feedback. Um, and, you know, if you have not told anyone in your life, or even if you have, please tell some people, spread the word. We have got to get the truth out there. Thanks, and have a good day. Lips with they didn't think about just who they was attacking. Wake boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Battle stations, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. Light up all them battleships and send the seafood packing. Train them guns out, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. Dee